Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's June the 30th, 2022. As always, uh, I'm talking to you from San Francisco on the edge of Silicon Valley, where I can peer in and figure out, try to figure out what's going on. Um, some odd things, as always. It's a fascinating place to observe. One story that really caught a lot of people's imagination was that uh, Google, and I'm quoting the New York Times here, sidelined, I don't know what sideline means, an engineer who claimed that its AI is sentient. Uh, for ordinary people, that means that this engineer thought that um, the AI was a real person. It was actually alive, which is an interesting concept. Why they sideline this engineer is, is interesting. Um, Vox suggested that Silicon Valley is fertile ground for obscure religious beliefs. Um, and the Washington Post reports that um, the, this Google engineer thinks that the company's AI has come to life. This is not the first scandal that Google AI has been involved in. There's been a series of personnel controversies associated with Google's AI division. They're probably the leading company in the world when it comes to the development and research of artificial intelligence. Um, in May of this year, uh, Google um, dismissed a researcher uh, for fairly controversial reasons. Um, and a couple of years ago, a woman called Timnit Geru, uh, quite a prominent AI person within, um, within Google, was also let go. She was let go uh, with another senior person at Google called Margaret Mitchell. Um, and lots of controversy about what really happened both with Geru and Mitchell. Um, and I'm thrilled that um, Margaret is on the show today. I don't want to, Margaret, I don't want to turn this into a, uh, an inquisition about Google itself, because I, I'm sure you don't want that. I think that gets a little tiresome. Plus, I'm a little fearful of Google lawyers. They'll probably come and uh, lock oh, yeah. me up or something. Uh, but uh, coming back to this idea of Google, uh, again, and I, quote the New York Times, sidelining side an AI engineer for believing that their AI was um, alive. What do you make of that? It's a very odd story. Yeah. Um, well, first, uh, just a minor correction, um, Timnit Gebru. So there's a, there's a B, actually. Uh, so it's G-E-B-R-U. Uh, so that's actually her last name for what it's worth. Um, but yeah, it's hard last name for a lot of people. She's from Ethiopia. Right, Geru. Guru. Guru. Uh, Guru. Okay. And she was your yeah. colleague at, at Google. Yeah, she and I co-led the ethical AI team there. Um, and um, I had worked to set up this larger uh, machine learning fairness org um, for a couple of years and then was able to bring her in uh, or convince her to come rather uh, to come co-lead with me. Um, and I guess turning to uh, what you were talking about um, at the start of this show, um, one of the people that we worked with um, was Blake Lemoyne, um, who's uh, an engineer at Google. Um, and he is someone who has generally really had um, a nose for ethics. So, yeah. 
you know, it's, it's sort of like thinking about ethical considerations is not something that comes naturally to a lot of people. Um, but for some people it does, and they can be sort of interdisciplinary, like having an understanding of societal contexts and values while also like programming. Um, and Blake was definitely one of those people. Um, and I actually did some work with him on how to um, mitigate bias in machine learning models, um, which was published at a, a fairly um, uh, renowned conference. Um, and so, you know, in my time at Google, I, I worked with him. I had a ton of respect for him. I mean, I still have a ton of respect for him. Um, and then the, the sort of recent uh, stuff happening um, with respect to him seeing sentience and, and that sort of thing. I mean, um, he and I have different belief systems. You know, we see different things, uh, you know, when we look at technology. Um, but I do think that um, Blake is a bit of a, um, like a canary in a coal mine, uh, because I, I don't think that this idea that AI is sentient is going to go away. I think that it will only further grow. Um, and so, you know, Blake is, is flagging something that I think is really relevant um, because it's tapping into sort of a cultural zeitgeist at the moment uh, about concerns around artificial intelligence gaining consciousness or what it's like to have consciousness or what is consciousness. This has really been an active discussion a lot within the past few months, past year. Yeah, I mean, and that's why you want it. It's a fascinating subject, Margaret. Yeah. It's not going to go away. Yeah. Uh, I love how you put it about Blake. You said he had a nose for ethics. I'm yeah. curious what that means. And you suggest that a lot of people perhaps in tech don't. I, I wonder, firstly, what a nose for ethic means from the point of view of a programmer. And secondly, why perhaps he's in a minority when it comes to having this nose for ethics. Yeah, um, it can be really hard to sort of articulate without maybe examples. Um, so, so at a high level, one of the things that you have to do when you're operationalizing ethics um, within tech is to be able to articulate different kinds of values and priorities and um, be able to have a sense of sort of the pros and cons and the tensions between them. Um, and so one example um, where uh, I really was able to start noticing that there's a little bit of a difference in how people see things um, and how sort of able people are to do this um, was um, when Google was putting forth this crowdsource app, which was to um, collect images that people can volunteer to do throughout the world of uh, different kinds of cultures, societies, contexts. And so at a high level, we love inclusion. We love diversity. Yeah, this sounds great. Um, but this is actually not the whole story, right? Because when you are using um, cameras to take pictures of people, uh, you have to have their consent if you want to be aligned with their possible values. And so now you have this idea of like responsible democratization or rather democratization of technology coming up against another tension, which is around consent to like have your image taken and then upload it to Google. Um, another aspect of that was that this was meant to be volunteer work, um, but it's a crowdsourcing work where on all other crowdsourcing platforms, people are paid. Um, but Google's in a position to kind of push that app um, unpaid and have people not be aware that they could be doing very similar tasks, um, but paid. 
Um, and so this this comes with the compensation exploitation sort of sort of value, right? And so I think that it is common for people to be like high level motivated by some great goal, like diversity, inclusion, or whatever, and in trying to meet that goal, completely miss all of the other sort of tensions with their decisions. Um, and I mean, this happens again and again in tech. I could I could actually give a ton of examples of this. Yeah, I mean, you you've not only worked at Google, I think you've worked at Microsoft. You're working now with a startup, so you know your way around. Yeah the tech yeah. world. Um, Margaret, when I use the term AI, I don't even know what it means. Well, what, yeah. How would you define it? Everyone uses it. It's one of those words that get thrown around. How would yeah. you define it? Yeah, it's definitely become a catch-all. Um, so um, I see artificial intelligence as a, uh, as a large uh, sort of superset that includes um, uh, machine learning, uh, which is uh, well, I don't know if you need me to define machine learning, but it's a, an approach uh, that creates sort of what we've been calling AI. Um, and then within machine learning, there's deep learning, which is a type of machine learning, which is now the state of the art in what we've been calling AI. Um, that said, outside of these algorithmic things, um, other things that can fall into the bucket of AI is like rule-based systems, like the sort of things we've called AI in the past, like in the 80s. Um, AI was a lot more common. And then there was an AI winter when uh, the sort of hype wasn't, wasn't um, uh, actually matching what happened. Um, but I sort of see it as like concentric circles that get smaller and smaller, where the big broad umbrella of AI is sort of like technology that, um, that is able to interact with a person in some way. Uh, and then within that is machine learning, which is the learning part of AI, the thing that has to do with learning uh, learning systems. And then um, within that, there's deep learning, which is the state of the art in AI. Um, and so a lot of us who work in machine learning have had to transition to saying AI, which is like a broader category, in order for people to know what we're talking about. Um, there was a lot of pushback for several years. Like we didn't want to say we worked on AI, we work on machine learning. That's that's misleading. Uh, but yeah, if and I've always thought of yeah. the great shift from Web one to Web two from yes. search engines like Yahoo, where you where they employed librarians, to Google, where there wasn't a librarian sitting in some office somewhere giving you links. That it was an automated system. So when yeah. you enter something in Google then and now it automatically told you where to go i mean google's always been a, an ai company hasn't it from its birth yeah i mean within many definitions of ai that's that's true it, it automates things that might otherwise be done by do you people. see it as uh, uh, i did a little bit of research for this show do you see google as as the leader say perhaps with uh, open ai another very ambitious platform which when I went to its website today, promises to ensure that artificial general intelligence benefits all of humanity. Are they two of the leaders for this thing? So AGI, so that term you just brought up, artificial general intelligence, that's another kind of nuance in what AI is. Um, and so uh, I think this is relevant to your question, so I'll just like try and quickly explain. When we talk about AGI, we talk about systems that understand like humans do. Um, so there's a there's a thought there about maybe this includes consciousness, but not people who not everyone who works on AGI agrees that it has to include consciousness. 
But everyone does agree that um, given some uh, basic learning paradigm like, like a person would have, that the system can learn as well. And you don't have to have a ton of different like models and systems for a ton of different things. It's actually just one large system that can do like computer vision tasks, like recognizing people and you know sentiment tasks, like understanding the sentiment of a sentence. Um, and so AGI is a, a type of AI, a flavor of AI that not all companies are working towards. Um, Google has generally not been working towards AGI um they've been more uh what's called ani a narrow ai which tends to be a bit more task driven um but they are clearly going more and more into the agi space OpenAI was founded on the idea of agi and creating agi they've changed their, their messaging over time so now it doesn't sound like they want to create agi it sounds like given right, that and it was founded, uh, one of the founders is Elon Musk. Everybody knows he's a man of some yeah. controversy. Also, Sam Altman, another remarkably successful, wealthy and controversial figure out of Silicon Valley. So these people, I mean, there are real people behind these yeah. platforms, Yeah. Uh, yeah. which um, perhaps we'll come to. I, I noted, Margaret, you gave an interesting talk at Stanford recently, cementing a foundation of inequity in AI harms to society. There are people who believe that AI can benefit society. One of those is somebody at um, Deloitte called Bina Amanath. I'm not sure if you know her. She believes that AI can solve the problem of diversity. Um, she believes in something called trustworthy AI, mm -hmm. which is associated with Deloitte. She has a book out trustworthy AI. Are you in the same camp as Bina? I know you've given some thought to this. Can AI help in terms of fixing this historic problem of diversity and discrimination against women, against people of different skin colors and sexualities? Hmm. So I'm definitely a tech positive person. Um, obviously, I mean, I've worked in tech for like my entire adult life. Um, so um, I'm not someone who thinks that AI um, is bound to be horrible in some way. I have hope uh, on, on my more optimistic days, I have hope that it can ultimately be used for net benefit. Um, there's a lot to say about what the incentives are for thinking that if you work at a company creating services for AI, right? right. So like uh, like Deloitte. I mean, I don't want to, again, pick on yeah. particular companies here, but no, my, no, yeah. my, uh, my just, concern is that anyone who works for a commercial company, whether it's OpenAI or Deloitte or Google or whoever, and they're promising that this technology can benefit mankind, these companies are bent, for better or worse, on making profits for their employees and shareholders. So I'm not sure whether we should really trust them. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not even necessarily profits for their employees. It is profits for their shareholders. Um, yes. I mean, I, I guess this is another sort of tricky subject to get into, but, but the priority hasn't been the employees. And I think uh, this is another thing I could go into examples about that maybe is not the best way to move forward in this conversation and we're trying to avoid like lawyers from different companies yeah well i mean you can say what you want i, yeah. I mean uh i uh th there's a lot of controversy of course in silicon valley not just at google at facebook yeah. amazon um yeah uh apple a yeah. lot yeah. of disgruntled employees so things are changing aren't they 
Yeah, and there's so much to say about that and how people, you know, who were born in the U.S. sort of post 9-11 have a very different view of the world and society um, than people who were born before that. Um, you know, they grew up in a world where climate change was the reality, right? So instead of learning about, well, another sort of dark subject, but instead of worrying about, worrying about like, um, I don't know, the cuteness of polar bears, they grew up worrying about like polar bears dying off, right? So it's a very much more like in, in tune with the world and its issues kind of uh, population that we see increasingly now going into tech jobs. Uh, right. So people who are born in, in 2001 are, are now 21. Um, and so that has really brought with it a push for more cultural sensitivity, more thinking about the long term effects that we really didn't see in tech um, for people who were sort of born before there were so many concerns that everyone was aware of. What do you think of unionization? Uh, I'm not sure if you were involved with that at Google, but certainly there have been headlines about uh, staff at a, an Apple retail store voting yeah. in favor of unionization. Yeah. The Amazon stuff is continual headlines about yeah. workers in their warehousing, yeah. warehouses yeah. unionizing. Do you think this is one way to begin to fix these huge multi-trillion dollar tech companies is, is for their employees, particularly their less well-played employees to unionize? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's something to be said when people feel that they need to unionize. So like, ideally, if you're running the company well, then you won't have this massive pushback of employees wanting to unionize. Um, in many ways, um, it's a last resort. Um, and so, you know, unions are, uh, in a way, it's, it's sort of sad when it has to come to that. Um, also, unions are not generally fully beneficial for everyone involved. Um, so, you know, you let your own concerns end up being sidelined because they're prioritizing something else. And then, you know, there can be lots of lots of issues of you having to pay for things that aren't even supporting you or working against you. So unions aren't ideal. Um, it is kind of, you know, a little bit of a, a last resort sort of solution. Um, but there are models not in the US, but like in Germany, for example, um, where you have something like a union, it's it's a German word that I will butcher if I, I try and say it, but it works with the the top leaders, the shareholders um, to represent the employees. Um, and it doesn't have as adversarial a relationship with the company leaders that I think unions traditionally um, in the US have had. Um, it's sort of, you know, voices of the employees welcome to the table at the topest level, at the top levels to make decisions. Um, so I think there is some room for things that are union-like that might be um, a little bit better for, for both the employer and the employee. But in the current state in, in, in the U.S., unions are the option if you don't want to be like massively discriminated against. So unfortunately, it's sort of the way to go at, at the moment. Margaret, earlier this week, I had the Harvard University Business School professor, Deborah Spar on the show. She has a book out, Work, Mate, Marry, Love. She believes we're on the verge of an age in which we can create smart machines that we can indeed love. Um, this has been an endless ongoing debate. It remains one, of course. Um, Sherry Turkle's an old friend of mine. She's been on the show many times. She has a new book out, her autobiography, The Empathy Diaries. 
She strongly believes that that's not a possibility. Where do you stand on this Turkle versus Spa debate about creating, I don't know what we would call them, robots, smart machines, which we humans can literally empathize with and indeed perhaps even love? I think we already uh, empathize with um, not even things that seem intelligent, things that don't seem intelligent. Um, you know, like a poor abandoned lamp or something was a, a viral Ikea commercial for a while because it really pulled at people's heartstrings. This lamp was sitting there in the rain and it was the window, it could see into the window and there was a new lamp there, right? So like, especially when, when we uh, perceive things as vulnerable, uh, we tend to really feel empathy, even if it has like no sign of intelligence. So I would say we're already there. Yes, that's already possible. Um, uh, but um, I think to your other question about like whether this is good or wh whether this. I mean, whether I mean, it's one thing to perhaps humanize a lamp, but no one, not even Google engineers imagine talking to that lamp or thinking that lamp's human. But now <laughs> we can create. Um, I don't know, little dogs or little robots that move around, that think. There was a wonderful novel that came out a couple of years ago called Clara and the Sun, imagining a not-too-distant future yeah. in which everyone had these robots we could talk to. We're not far from that. Oh. Yeah, yeah. I don't think we are from, far from that. Um, especially and is that shit? I mean, for you as someone who's pioneering this stuff, is this chilling? Is it exciting or is it a mix of the both? Yeah, it's a mix of the both. And this goes to this idea of having different value tensions when you're thinking about things through different ethical lenses. So one of the things I think about a lot um, is assistive and augmentative technology. And um, I've worked on, for example, cognitive decline um, in aging populations, where it's been shown that you don't have as rapid a cognitive decline, um, you know, once you hit around 72, I think that's the average age, if you have someone to regularly engage and talk to. Um, and it also helps with depression and all these other things. And so um, when you're thinking about the older population, the aging population, there's a lot of potential benefits with having some kind of automated partner. Um, there's also potential risks like them not realizing that it's not actually a person and how that might affect them if they learned that, you know, there's, there's these tensions, there's these trade-offs, but it's not all bad. You can see clear benefits. Um, and so, you know, similarly, you know, people who are autistic and are trying to be able to, you know, connect uh, in some way, talk in some way, have, have practice, you know, corresponding or have practice aligning to expected norms. Uh, these are the kinds of things that could be really useful. Um, but again, you know, there's also the issues of uh, people being manipulated into thinking things that aren't true are true. This comes with it like convincing people of extremist viewpoints or, um, you know, taking money from them, all these sorts of things. Um, so the, the level of intelligence, how the, how the intelligence is realized and the situations that it's used in, I think really creates, um, different kinds of concerns and, and benefits. Um, Margaret, let me ask you a speculative question. Let's say 
that the systems that you've been working on and the different AI systems, they're all somehow perfected. So they know the world, as Eric Schmidt, the former CEO at Google said, better than we know ourselves. Could we trust a private company with this technology? Or do we need to start thinking about perhaps treating AI as a public utility, as something that we all earn, that we all not earn, own, and that exists in some sort of transparent public space, perhaps built around blockchain-like technology, which means it can't be manipulated by private companies or politicians? Yeah, I mean, definitely the latter, although I'm not sure about blockchain, that, that sort of that gets into another conversation. Um, but I think that at least, um, you know, with my experience with Google, they fired uh, my co-lead and then me after we um, tried to write a paper and did write a paper that was basic due diligence on one kind of general model. So they essentially demonstrated that they are not able to do basic due diligence, which is a literature review, essentially like looking at what do we already know um, and even being transparent about it, that they are not capable of doing that. And so that blows away any sort of self-regulatory argument um, when, you, when you show that you're not capable of doing it. Um, and so ideally, this is a situation where private companies could have uh, some sort of self-regulation um, and then maybe not be as transparent, transparent about everything. Um, but in practice, we've seen not even that the basics of doing that um, end up panning out. So that means we have to be in a situation where this is very transparent. This is a public uh, utility, as, as you said. Um, and, and regulated in, in a way. And you've seen these companies from the inside, as they said, you've worked obviously at Google, yeah. Microsoft. I'm sure you've got many friends working in these large companies. Yeah. How can we reform these companies? How can we make them better, more yeah. transparent, more accountable, and more responsible so that we indeed, we citizens can trust them? Yeah. So, so PR and headlines does a ton. Um, and that's why it's so problematic when journalists cover um, these companies with like breathless awe about the technology, because that's what they want, right? That's, that's doing their PR for them. Um, but all these companies live in fear of horrible headlines and will um, immediately fix problems that seem to be something that will cause a bad headline, or if something, you know, really is a bad headline, um, then, you know, the high priority to fix. Um, and, you know, more so than someone inside saying, this will be a bad headline, <laughs> right? Like it's a reactive uh, kind of process there. But I find that this, this sort of PR fear really, really drives what the companies end up doing. Um, and so, you know, to the extent that people can speak up about issues that they're having publicly uh, with technology, and that journalists can then hold the companies accountable and move forward with reporting on things that are super problematic, um, that will fundamentally shape what tech is and what it does. Margaret, we had someone on the show, I don't know if she's a PR person, but certainly someone close to the tech industry who wrote a book suggesting that we've gone too far with the tech lash, that all journalists now do is write stories hostile to tech. Do you think that's true? And are there... No. Do you think there are particular journalists who have done a good job exposing yeah. what's happening in Silicon Valley and these big companies? So Karen Howe, um, she uh, she used to be at MIT Technology uh, um, 
review and now she's at the wall street journal uh i hope i'm getting that right um she's done an amazing job at doing a deep dive into these companies she actually spent six months working at facebook in order to really see um inside and you know kudos to facebook for for giving her that visibility you're um, the first person margaret to say anything good about facebook for about 10 years <laughs> Well, you know, it's it's all value tensions, you know. Yeah, pros and I think pros. they changed their name anyway to Meta, didn't they? Yeah, right. Yeah, I don't know about Meta, but <laughs> this was something that um, you know Facebook I thought was very brave to do, um, but then you know apparently it didn't pan out as ideally as it could have for them because Karen Howe was able to articulate a lot of the issues, you know. And the issues are essentially there are amazing people working at these companies who do very very good work, legitimately care about the ethics, all of this kind of stuff but they're not empowered and enabled within the companies and up the hierarchy to really realize a lot of the work that they're trying to do. Um, so, you know, that ends up being a massive issue. So anyway, Karen Howe is really great at this. Uh, Carrie Johnson, who's now at Wired, um, he used to be at VentureBeat. He does a really good job. Um, but um, I, think the, I think those are probably my two uh, favorite journalists in, in this space. Um, but it's definitely not the case that there's been much of a tech lash or too much of a tech lash. Um, there is something to be said about the fact that there's a desire within the public to um, be angry at, at the man or the big brother. Um, and so like anytime you say anything as a big tech company, there will be people like, oh, maybe that's not true or trying to see if there's errors in that in some way. Um, that, that's inevitable and that happens when you're a big company. Um, the, you know, the increasing problem is that there's a massive disconnect between what companies are claiming and what is actually happening and what people can observe as they're actually using these systems. Um, and that causes a lot of, um, a lot of tech lash, I suppose, that wouldn't need to be there if the companies weren't trying so hard to pull the wool over the public's eyes. Um, or, you know, blow. These are up. enormously uh, powerful companies, though, in some ways more yeah. powerful than governments. We've seen with the post row wage stuff that the, the companies are taking responsibility for their own people, their own hands. They probably get a lot of good PR for that. I'm guessing you're yeah. probably sympathetic. But at what point do we need stronger government regulation? It's, it's one thing to have a more honest press. Don't yeah. we need a stronger government? Regulation is certainly reshaping tech in Europe in particular, and even in China, although that model is also particularly creepy, I think. Right. So you bring up a good point with China. So I think in the US, we like to say, or at least some people like to say that like, oh, the private companies can't handle it. Regulation from the government will help us. But that assumes that the government is a friendly actor who will try to do the right thing. Um, and we know throughout the world that, you know, and also within the within America's recent past, like we don't have governments uh, necessarily that will do the right thing for the people either. And so relying on the government to make things right is um, uh, optimistic, I think, to the point of naivety uh, or naivete. Um, and, you know, China, like the government is absolutely super involved with everything to the point of surveilling the citizens. And so that's kind of right. the social credit system seems like right. digital 1984. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so, you know, that's a situation where you're like, oh, the government is really involved. And then it's like, oh, no, that's terrifying, too. Um, and so I really do see the free press 
in particular as, as critical because um, they're really showing what reality is. Um, and so we need that, that voice in this conversation, no matter what. And finally, Margaret, let's say, I mean, clearly AI, and you've defined it in a broad sense, is the future of all tech. Every tech company, whether it's Tesla or Google or Facebook, Meta, Amazon, they're all AI companies. What would you like to see over the next five to 10 years, one or two points that can make these platforms, these companies more accountable and responsible? And what needs to happen alongside a more aggressive uh, press? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's a few different things for that. Um, so one, transparency is a mechanism for accountability. So the more that you can uh, share public, sh share publicly, um, the more that can be examined and audited um, or even internally, you know, creating systems where an external auditor to, can come in. Um, that ends up creating a, a huge incentive for doing the right thing. Um, so if someone has to see what you did, like you are going to be sure that it's as good as possible. Um, so transparency is a mechanism for accountability and accountability is an incentive for good processes. Um, so that's one thing. The other sort of side of this is around uh, participatory design and bringing in um, the voices of people who are affected by all aspects of technology. Um, there's been some great work, work recently on decolonial AI, which talks about how we, uh, you know, the, the more rich countries and, and the, the, um, the companies within uh, suck up the resources of uh, uh, less, uh, less wealthy countries and then end up sort of controlling the lives of those countries uh, in, in servitude of the larger tech company. Um, and so to the extent that we can have this full worldview of the entire ecosystem of technology and actually bring in, you know, representatives across different sort of um, different populations, different kinds of living situations that are affected by technology to help shape what it is, um, then we're going to be um, in a much more inclusive position, if nothing else. Well, good stuff, Margaret Mitchell. I hope you will get back into one of these big companies. We need brave, unambiguous, uncompromising voices like yours in AI. What else are you reading? I, you know, you write a lot of these highly complicated white papers. Do you read books at all? Do you read love stories or books? Oh, love, no, I haven't read a lot. So there's this book I've been reading called Anarchy, which is uh, the history of the, um, uh, the uh, East India Trading Company. Um, and how, <laughs> and essentially, <laughs> right. And uh, that, um, uh, we we had the author of that book on the show. It's a really important book, and he's a wonderful, oh, uh, wonderful yeah. historian. Yeah, yeah. So, but I mean, obviously, that has so William many uh, Will, William Dalrymple. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, so, <laughs> but that has parallels with modern corporations and stuff and says a lot about what colonial AI is. It's just like, you know, one hop away from understanding uh, how those same sorts of things that happened, you know, in the past with that, like also now applies with what's happening with technology. Uh, love story. The last love story I read was Alex and Ada, which is a graphic novel about um, a guy who falls in love with a, with a sentient robot. <laughs> We're back with AI. We're back with people thinking that AI is a, a human. <laughs> yeah.
full circle. Yeah. Um, but it was a great book. I love thinking about that stuff, how it pans out. You know, other people have done great thinking on sort of the fictions, which may indeed become realities. So, yeah.